Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you all very much for coming out this evening for tonight's Sydney Ideas event about whether calculus can cure cancer. So I'd like to acknowledge that tonight we are meeting at the University of Sydney, which is built on Gadigal land, so the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And as such, the university is continuing a tradition of learning based that has continued through thousands of years, so clearly far, far longer than the 150 years of history of the university. So my name is uh, Jennifer Byrne. Some of you will have recognised that I have the same surname as our speaker this evening, Professor Helen Byrne. And um, yes, I was thinking about some sort of mathsy jokes that I could make about that, like burn to the power of two or something. But anyway. Um, so um, look, I'm, to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous being here tonight. And that is because, um, yeah, I didn't really do a lot of maths <laughs> during my education. I did maths at school. Um, and then I did science at university and I could have chosen to do maths, but I went to university thinking, well, I'm going to be a biologist, I don't need maths. Um, but in that sense, actually, I was, I was wrong. And I think one of the things that probably discouraged me from studying maths was the fact that at school, I remember in my sort of two-unit maths equivalent, we would be pestering our maths teacher saying, well, what's this going to be used for? And the maths teacher would just basically refuse to <laughs> answer that question. I think what we know now with, you know, the rise of technology and the way that people interact with, you know, digital systems all the time is that we now know that maths is really, really important. It underpins every aspect of life and perhaps, you know, hopefully there's a growing awareness of that within, within the community. And I think we've had a great demonstration of that uh, this year with the Prime Minister's um, Prize for Science being awarded to Professor Cheryl Prager. From the University of Western Australia and we're very honoured to have Professor Prager here this evening. She's just sitting in the front row so I think we should congratulate her. I think this is the first time that the Prime Minister's Prize for Science has been awarded for mathematics so it's a wonderful recognition of the importance of mathematics in society and of course of Professor Prager's lifelong work so welcome and it's wonderful to have you here. So I will now introduce the most important Byrne here this evening, so Professor Helen Byrne from the University of Oxford. So Helen studied mathematics um, at Cambridge University and then she obtained a master's degree and a DPhil from the University of Oxford, which is where she's working now. Um, but prior to that, she undertook a number of, she undertook postdoctoral studies in the UK and worked at a number of different universities. And she's now at Oxford University, where she is, um, she's a professor of mathematical biology based in the Mathematical Institute at the University of Oxford. Um, she's the associate head of department at the Mathematical Institute, and she's also an academic lead for um, equality and diversity, which I think is obviously important in the field of mathematics um, as it is in many areas of science. So I'd like to invite Helen now to take the stage and we look forward to hearing about your work. Thank, Thank you very much.
It's an extra pleasure to be able to talk to you um, this evening about um, some of the ways in which maths can and is being used to try and understand how tumours grow and also to help with improving treatments for them. Um, so I guess um, before we get started, we should probably think about what's the problem? Uh, why do we need maths to help? What's going on with cancer prevalence around the world? Um, so I thought I'd start just by showing you, um, if I can make this work, um, just showing you how cancer incidences have changed over the last, I think it's about, uh, what, just under 30 years. And um, just to give you an idea, that, so imagine an animation playing. So it's just giving you an idea of how across the world sort of instances of cancer have changed over the last years. And I guess you can see in particular, it's interesting, I think, if you notice very small num number changes, how um, generally rising incidence, but in Australia, just over the last few years, a slight reduction. But just to give you an idea, to paint a picture of the situation across the world, and you can probably guess where instances are highest, I guess, in, in the developed world. Um, that's showing you how incidences are rising. And I guess the other side to the, the uh, solving the problem is um, what are the cure rates looking like? Um, and I guess our holy grail, which is what the picture is of, is to try and be able to cure cancer to whilst incidence, incidence levels might be rising, can we develop treatments that um, will kind of counter the rise in um, incidences as people are living longer, uh, having different li lifestyles that are more uh, giving rise to higher incidence rates. Um, so I'll just show you how this is, um, say, the five-year survival rate. So people who had cancer who are still alive five years afterwards. And this is the picture back in 77. And you can see that for some, the um, survival rate is very, very high up in the 90s. Others, it's quite low. If we then jump forward to 2013, you can see that for some cancers, it's, I mean, it, for all of them, it's pretty much improved. For some, it's almost 100%. Look at prostate cancer. Prognosis there is really, really excellent. Um, for others, um, looking down at the lower levels, pancreas, etc., it's improved, but there's still more work to do. So I guess that really is just to sort of set the scene and you can think of that as a backdrop to um, the modelling work um, that we're going to talk about this evening. So I guess just to um, start off, um, how can we use calculus? And I guess one of the starter questions would be to try and um, understand how tumours grow and then we can put treatment on top of that and see what the effects would be. So just, I guess, to start off with then, let's think of a very, very simple situation. So here is um, an MRI, medical re resonance image of um, a slice through a brain. And you can see I've highlighted for you where the tumour region is. So if we want to build a model to think about how the tumour grows and spreads and invades that brain tissue, we need to think about what are the biological processes that are going on? What do the tumour cells do? So I guess I've kind of already said what they do. So the tumour cells, they grow, they divide, and they also can move. And it turns out that, in fact, that they move and divide at different rates, depending on whether they're in grey matter or white matter. 
So what we can do is take that knowledge and we can represent it in mathematical symbols, which I will show you in a moment, and use calculus basically to translate what we understand of the biology into some mathematical equations. Here they are. Um, so this is just to show you what they look like. I mean, you can hopefully read the words down below. Um, really, it's just trying to take the different processes, so cell movement and um, a gross term which represents cell division, and that describes basically how the number of tumour cells we have in our domain changes over time. So we can solve those equations on a computer. Um, before we start doing that, I guess, let's go back and think about the MRI scans. So I showed you the picture you can see in the top right-hand corner, and with a um, um, MRI scanner, it has obviously got a limited spatial resolution. So if you imagine the true spatial extent might be the red blob that you can see in the picture, what the scanner sees is really just above a certain density threshold. So what we can do with our model is try and predict, if we can sort of align it with the image, knowing what the spatial resolution is, then our model will give us an idea of the true spatial extent of the tumour mass and how that changes over time. And so I should say that this, this work is really due to Kristen Swanson, who works at the Mayo Clinic, and a lot, so the basic model that I just showed you is really underpinning an awful lot of her work, which is actually motivating clinical trials where they're using these sorts of models with various uh, bells and whistles put onto them. Um, but at heart, it basically is the model that I just showed to you. Um, so on the next slide, this is just giving you, uh, enabling you to contrast what the MRI scanner would see, which is in the top set of panels, which is just showing you how that tumour would grow through different slices of your brain. The picture down at the bottom is showing you, by solving the um, equation that's in the bottom right, what would be the true spatial extent. So I guess the colours, the uh, whiter colours are higher density, but it just gives you an idea of how we can use the models to predict. I mean, a, a, a clinician would know that the tumour is larger than what you can see on the scanner, but this gives you an idea of what the extent would be. And I guess then what you can do is take your model and we can put treatment into it and compare and contrast different sorts of treatment, equally use this sort of information to guide what um, tissue you should extract if you're going to do surgery. So that's really just to give you an idea of how we can use modelling, um, as I said, to, to see below the tip of the spatial resolution of your MRI scanner. Um, so going back to my motivation, so just showing you uh, a simple model that describes how a tumour might grow. That's just, I guess, the starting point. What we want to follow up with then is how might a tumour respond to treatment? A variety of different treatments, we'll look at that in a moment. Um, if we understand how they might respond to treatment, then a next question is, can we do better with existing treatments by delivering them, say, slightly differently? Are we using the right treatment protocol? Good question. And again, I guess... Part of the value of the maths here is answering those questions by either using animals or clinical trials. That takes a lot of time and it's people's lives and a lot of money. So if we can use our models to try and accelerate or short circuit any of that experimentation and get better treatments out quicker, that can only be a good thing. 
So um, in addition to trying to improve, say, existing treatment protocols, one other idea is um, trying to use models to understand how new treatments might work, either alone or in combination with existing treatments. And I guess from a personal point of view, um, sort of, I guess, cancer is a very emotive subject. I think everybody in the audience, we all probably know somebody who's had cancer. And I guess for me, that's my mum. Glad to say she's still around to tell the tale. But um, again, I think um, it's definitely something when you have a personal experience that motivates you even more to try and understand. Okay. So, um, as I said, how can, can, how can calculus help um, understanding how tumours grow and how we might treat them? Um, and I guess this is just, um, you can see with mathematical models, what we're doing is we're simplifying, we're trying to abstract so that we can get to the essence of what's going on. Um, and I guess um, before we start, really, it begs the question... Um, I showed you the data of survival curves, cure rates, five-year survival, and you can see the picture is quite positive. Things are moving in a positive direction. And I suppose that so begs the question of do clinicians actually need any help? Do they really need mathematicians um, by their side? And I guess that's part of the question that we want to address in tonight's talk. So the talk will be broken down into essentially three different bits. First of all, I'm going to look at um, how we might understand um, responses of tumours to radiotherapy. Um, then I'm going to look at how we can use models to try and think about how you combine different sorts of treatments. And at the end, I'm going to kind of touch on other branches of maths um, that we can sort of try and use to um, understand um, aspects of tumour growth. Okay. Um, so, in terms of um, the tools that clinicians have available to them to um, try and um, uh, cure patients of cancer, I guess the mainstays are still surgery, radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Um, what I'm going to talk about now is just some simple mathematical models that describe um, patient responses to radiotherapy. Um, so what is radiotherapy? I guess that's a good starting point. So um, typically we have, say, high energy x-rays which are focused on cancer cells and that will cause damage to the cell's DNA and then kill the cells when they either either fatally kill them when it's initially exposed or it, they, it will damage them and when they try to replicate, if they're still damaged badly enough, then they'll fall over and die then. And obviously, if you've got something that's that damaging, you really need to make sure that you're protecting as much any surrounding healthy tissue. There are now very, very sophisticated scanners where you can almost dose paint and so focus your um, radiotherapy at particular sites very much to try and protect the surrounding healthy tissue. Again, if you think about just the physics that goes behind setting up these sorts of scanners, there's an awful lot of maths uh, and modelling that underpins the way in which you set those up. I'm not going to talk about that today, but um, I guess that's something um, also to think about. Um, so what we're going to look at, I guess, if we want to think about how a tumour responds to radiotherapy, we need to start with a model of tumour growth. 
Uh, um, I already showed you one, but I think we'll look at something that's a little bit simpler. So a typical growth curve might look as, as I've drawn it in the picture here. So initially, the tumour might grow very rapidly. And then as it starts to, um, uh, its supplies of nutrients, um, uh, it gets too big, it sort of outgrows its food supply, then its growth might slow. And eventually, um, you'll get to some sort of equilibrium size where there's a balance between which um, cells which have high levels of nutrient are dividing and cells which are starved of nutrients are dying. And if you get the balance between growth, birth rates and death rates, then you can get to um, an equilibrium where the tumour reaches um, a certain size, call, call it, for example, a carrying capacity. So we can write down a very simple model that describes these growth kinetics. If V is my uh, tumour volume at time T, R is a growth rate, K is this equilibrium or carrying capacity, and then the differential equation calculus that describes that growth law is displayed in the box. So what we want to do now is put some treatment on top of that. And in particular, we're going to irradiate this theoretical tumour. And the way in which we do that is using something called a linear quadratic model. Basically, the idea is at particular time intervals, um, and typically that would be, say, five days a week, um, break for the weekend because uh, radiologists don't necessarily work at the weekends tumor doesn't go doesn't stop working at the weekends unfortunately so we irradiate we see a reduction in the tumor size and we assume it's instantaneous so this is why you'll see where the um, cross line that's when my treatment starts you can see radiotherapy a marked reduction which is proportional or a function of the dose d of radiotherapy that i deliver then it grows during the rest of the day and so we see this sawtooth dynamic and then a longer growth over the weekend okay so the red line the, the continuous line shows you what would happen if we didn't treat and then the sawtooth lines are showing what would happen in response for, for different values of the model parameters, um, R, growth rate, carrying capacity, etc. Um, so you can see the sorts of dynamics that you might predict. Um, so here you've got the growth in the absence of treatment. And then what we can do is, here's one round of radiotherapy. There's another round and another round. And then we could play around with, so suppose if I increase the growth rate, then you can start to get a feel for how, as you change the parameters, if I reduce the equilibrium size, you can see how different um, tumours, different patients might respond differently um, to the same treatment. So that really just gives you an idea, a very simple model but still one that's used clinically to try and predict what would be a patient's uh, um, tumour size at the end of a round of uh, course of radiotherapy. So that's a simple theoretical model where you can see how as we change the parameters, you can start to get a feel for how from one tumour to another, the outcome, even giving them the same treatment, it can be quite variable. And I guess this is one of the problems. What we see here now is some real clinical data. Uh, this is taken from the Moffitt Cancer Centre in, in the States. Um, so I tried with my highlighter pen to 
highlight the dots, you can see I'm not very good at drawing either. Um, and the point of this data is really just to show you that patients don't necessarily conform to my simple mathematical model. So in some of these cases, so what we see is the hash line is when treatment starts and we show tumour volumes every week during a course of treatment. So the one in the top left is a good responder. So the tumour is growing a little bit until we start treatment and then the tumour volumes shrink quite nicely. Top right, we can see it, the patient responds well, but then it plateaus. Bottom left, we can see actually the tumour continues, seems to continue to grow, but eventually it starts to respond. So there are a number of different dynamics and our simple model just can't quite explain them. So what's, that's a bit of a problem. So what can we do? Um, so we have to go back to the drawing board. So if we go back to the drawing board, then let's, let's make a new model. And I guess the key idea with this new model, so we have our tumour cells, very much the same equation that we had before. The cells are growing. There might be a certain amount of cell death. That doesn't really matter. And then we come along with our radiotherapy once a day and we kill off some of those cells. The simple model that I showed to you, that dead material just disappeared magically straight away. Now, in practice, dead material may not disappear immediately and straight away. So the purpose of this model is to say, let's kind of keep track of that dead material. So the, the death due to radiotherapy, when I get rid of cells here, I create dead material, if you like, down here. And that dead material would degrade away at a certain rate. Okay. So the key idea in the model is that Oh, um, dead cells aren't removed immediately after radiotherapy. So if we now try and solve these equations, what you can see, so the dots are the data, the blue lines are showing you the prediction in terms of the tumour volume, and the yellow lines, uh, there are a lot of them, which is why it looks like a mess, uh, they're telling you for each of the different fits that are consistent with the data for each different parameter set, um, they're showing you what we predict, how much dead material there would be inside the tumour. So in this model, our tumour consists of live cells, but also dead cells. And what you can see is with this model, we can, we can pretty well reproduce all of the um, dynamics that we see, the different dynamics uh, that we saw in the patient data. And we are quite accurate. So the blue lines are fairly tight, but our ability to kind of predict what the spatial composition, because we only know the overall size, but we don't know anything about what's going on inside, we don't have very much certainty about that. Um, so in a sense, we've kind of um, got better insight because we've shown that it's possible, one possible explanation for these different types of dynamics is the presence of dead material, which is not cleared straight away. But it's disappointing because we can't accurately tie it down. Um, so um, what we find is that the different dynamics that we see, we can explain those by saying the rates at which dead material is being removed is different for different patients. Um, but unfortunately, we can't accurately predict the tumour composition if you only give us the volumes data. 
Now, this is again now one, one of the other ways in which the modelling can be helpful because we can sort of play games, if you like, and say, suppose I gave you some extra data. Suppose I actually knew what the proportion of dead material was in the tumour. So, in fact, we use a more sophisticated model, which I won't go through today, to generate some synthetic data, which we give to our model, and we try and see if I give it extra data, if I know what the proportion, the, the proportion of dead material is, is at some given time points, how much better does that make my predictions? So, you can see the difference from the top set of curves to the bottom you can see that by giving it extra data, so there are some very faint green dots here, which is the extra data that we're providing. And, and you can see how that's markedly improving our ability to predict what the true spatial composition is. So really what we're seeing here is we're using our mathematical model, a more sophisticated model, to kind of make a case for if you could collect this extra data, how helpful that would be in telling us more about the spatial composition and that will be useful in predicting the, the growth trajectory um, through treatment and post-treatment. Um, so, and I guess um, um, just to sort of take stock, this is kind of often how I feel. So, if you think about um, the models that we've just looked at, you start off, you think you know how something works then you're confronted with some data or some extra biology and you realise it's more complicated than you thought it was. So it, this is, I think, something that I feel quite often, um, i.e. the more I learn, the less I know. And so anyway, just a bit of diversion for you. Um, so anyway, just to kind of take stock on what we've um, discussed so far, uh, what I've tried to show to you is how with some very simple models, we can use them to predict um, how tumour size changes um, during a course of treatment. Uh, by developing a more sophisticated model, we can try and explain some non-standard behaviours. And additionally, we can use the model to guide, um, to suggest that if we could collect extra data, what would be the value of it? Uh, how would that improve our um, understanding um, and potentially uh, predictions about um, further outcomes for a, a patient? Okay, um, so that's all great. Uh, going back to um, the more I learn, the less I know. Um, possibly a question that's um, been hanging in your brains is um, I've kind of talked about we can explain those different data on the basis of dead material being removed at different rates. So that kind of begs the question of why might the removal rates differ? Um, and there are a number of possible explanations, but what one that we're going to work with now is um, macrophages. So macrophages are a type of white blood cell. Um, they do a lot of jobs around the body. They will fight infections. They will recognize foreign bodies and engulf them, as you can see them doing a good job here of trying to get rid of three tumor cells. Um, they can also help with wound healing, uh, encouraging new blood vessels to grow when you um, cut yourself to repair the wound. So they do an awful lot of different jobs in the body. And therefore, it's no surprise to see uh, macrophages um, appearing at high levels in, in many different solid tumours. So one of the possible explanations for those different um, 
dynamics that we saw, the different rates at which dead material is degraded, one possible explanation would be that we're recruit well, either we're recruiting macrophages, but somehow or another, when they're in the tumor microenvironment, they're being um, manipulated to not do their normal job. So where they should recognize a foreign um, body um, abnormal tumor cells, the tumors kind of tricked them and made them um, misbehave, if you like. Um, so that would be one possible explanation. Another possible explanation would be that the macrophages aren't getting there. The signals that they should that that should be being sent out to recruit them into the tumor, maybe they're not being sent out. Could be that the blood flow to the tumor, which is notoriously um, irregular, chaotic, etc., maybe that's preventing um, our immune cells from getting getting to the tumor site. There's a whole host of different possible reasons, um, but we can think about one possible explanation for the data is that it's something perhaps wrong with macrophages. One possible explanation, not unique. Um, so if we think about that, then that raises the question of what can we do from a therapeutic point of view? And there are a number of different things that we could try to do depending on what might be going wrong. So if we believe that the macrophages are not behaving as they should, they're present, but they're being manipulated um, by the tumor cells, we could try and develop a therapy that would make them behave normally again. So maybe the tumor is expressing a chemical that makes the macrophages um, want to um, um, encourage new blood vessels to grow. Uh, maybe it's making them... Um, just not recognize um, foreign bodies. So if there was some way of neutralizing those signals, then we could perhaps restore the normal function of a macrophage. An alternative approach would be to try and introduce some genetically engineered, um, I guess, super duper macrophages that will go in with some therapy of their own. And when they get into the tumor environment, they'll give off this, this therapy and then that will have a cytotoxic effect um, and counter the misbehaving other macrophages. Um, other things that we could do if we thought that, that the delivery was the problem, we could work and try and remodel the vasculature in some way, target the blood vessels to try and unlock um, the um, transport blockade to let more macrophages come in. So there's a number of different things that we could do. Um, one, so I guess this raises, there's a whole host of choices. And what we can do is build mathematical models to look at all of those different alternatives and see, is there anything to choose between them? Are there any constraints? How well would this work in a particular, if, if, I, if I think this is what's going on or this is what's going wrong, will this work? Will it correct? Will both of these two treatments have the same effect? Those are some of the questions that we could start to address using um, mathematical models. So just to give you an example of um, one way in which we could um, manipulate macrophages for therapeutic ends is to um, take some macrophages and what we do is genetically engineer them so that when they arrive in particularly low oxygen regions, which are a hallmark of many tumours, then they will give off a virus. That virus is taken up by the tumour cells, replicates inside them, causes the tumour cells to die. When they die, they spit out virus and so you get this snowball effect.
So this isn't just a fancy idea. So we're kind of using the macrophages as a Trojan horse to deliver therapy into the tumour. Um, and so what we can do is think about if you had such a treatment, how would you combine that with radiotherapy? Because macrophages will still come in and try and eat up dead material. But if we have these um, genetically engineered macrophages as well, can we think about how we should deploy them together? So the next graph is just showing you the results from a, a mathematical model that tries to answer that question. So um, let me get this right. Um, so we could either give them simultaneously, um, which is the um, blue line. Sorry, I can't use a mouse. Um, um, and what it turns out, or we can deliver them, say, two, four, six, so many days apart. If we wait an awful long time, what you can see is um, we see quite rapid regrowth, overgrowth. Um, and what we, what we find in practice is that if we delay the timing of our macrophage virus therapy to just two days, we can see the best effect that the tumour shrinks when we irradiate and then when we give our radiotherapy it regrows back but more slowly than with any of the other um, options. So it just gives you an illustration of how we can use the model to play around with different options and I should add that in practice independently um, th they verified that indeed a two-day two delay was optimal for um, a particular example of this using, um, I think it was a prostate, um, prostate cancer cell line. Okay, so it just gives you an idea of how we can um, try and exploit uh, immune cells which might have been misbehaving, but we can engineer them to deliver treatments to the tumour and we can then use our models to try and think about how they should be coordinated. Okay. Um, so I guess this just summarizes. So um, a macrophage virotherapy is just one example. There's a whole host of other types of treatments that are being developed and or used, um, whether that be chronotherapy, trying to exploit your circadian clock to give tumor um, chemotherapy at different times of the day when you'll have a maximum effect, hypothermia, trying to heat up your tumor cells to kill them, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's a whole host of different things. And if you think about the combinations and trying to um, perform experiments to test all of them out, it's going to take forever. So if we can develop simple models that will allow us to kind of probe those different options, then it can enable the experimentalists or clinicians to focus on the ones that look the most promising. Okay. So um, final part of the talk. Um, I'm not quite sure how long I've been talking for. Okay, um, so I just so the models we've talked about thus far have all really been focused around using calculus. So what I'd like to just think about for for the remainder of the talk is what other branches of maths we can bring to the table, and at the same time bearing in mind if you think about all the different sorts of data that can be collected for um, biomedical research or cancer patients in particular, lots and lots of different types of data. Uh, that data and many of the, the mathematical models or computational models that are being de developed are extremely complex. 
Um, the picture on the right is just giving you an idea of the signaling pathways, the wiring of different genes and proteins that are within a cell. If we wrote down equations to track all of that, you know, it would fill the whole of the room. Um, that's not going to be very effective. Um, you can collect data um, from the genes, uh, omics data. We can have medical images, biopsies, blood data, all sorts of different data. How do we integrate those? Um, you can imagine that a mathematical model that would even start to do that is also going to be very complex. It's going to have lots and lots of parameters. So it's very challenging if we start thinking about trying to link all of that. So I guess what I talked about the models thus far has been very much focused on calculus. One can use statistics uh, to analyze uh, omics data, uh, to count cells in medical images, all sorts of different things. I guess what's less commonly uh, used is thinking about using pure maths. So pure maths, I guess, is things that are um, traditionally, I suppose, uh, how should I describe pure maths, not applied maths, maybe that's what I should call it. I'm just being careful here because there are people in the audience. Um, so really what I want to say is that I think all of maths is useful. It just, some of the uses have yet to be found. But some, I think pure maths is kind of um, becoming more applied. Um, so just as an example of that, um, topological data analysis. So what topological data analysis is about is trying to look at the shape of data. So with all of these, you can see, roughly speaking, a circle. What topological data will try and do is identify if you had points that represented those, these different circles, can it detect the circle? Um, and so topological data analysis is being used in a number of different applications, including medicine. Just let me try and explain with a very simple example how it works. So here's a, a cluster of dots. And all of you can see that they kind of approximate, roughly speaking, to a circle or there's a loop in the middle. So the way in which we're going to do our topological data analysis together now is imagine putting a ball on each of those dots and we're going to blow them up, right? And then what will happen is as the balls get bigger, some of the dots are going to merge together. So when they merge together, what we'll do, so the, the bars on the top where it says H0, it doesn't really what, mean what matter what that means, um, are just showing you those blue bars are keeping track of how many individual dots we have. And when two circles overlap, I lose one of the dots and I have one fewer segment. So I stop one of the bars, but I keep the others growing. So you can see how some of those bars, we start off with as many dots as we had. And then as we increase the size of the ball, some of them merge together. So they stop. Okay. Now, um, you can see there's, um, what will happen eventually is you may find that several balls or three balls will overlap. And if there's a hole in the middle, then we've formed a loop. So loops we keep track of in the bottom where it says H1. So you can see we've just started. There's a loop. I'll show it here. Um, around there. It's a little bit difficult because it's um, quite faint, but believe me, there is one. Um, and as we continue to grow the balls, then that small loop disappears and we can start to expose the central one. We keep going. So that's the last bar just crossing one in the bottom panel. 
Keep going. It's still there. It's persisting. Keep going. Eventually, when we cover the whole thing, that loop disappears. So what we can do here is the barcodes that you see on the top are really a summary of the shape of that data. And it's giving us sort of information about um, which points are connected to each other. And rather than just counting with, say, raw statistics, it's giving us a little bit more about its, its shape or topology. So we can apply these very same techniques in a range of different biological applications, whether that's to um, gene sequencing data or what we're going to look at here is some biopsy data. So these are some real images showing you the distribution of macrophages, which we've talked about already, or T cells, which is another type of immune cell. And so these are taken from the same tissue region. So these match. And what we can do if we apply the same sort of um, analysis to these different images, what we actually discover is that the T cells form larger loops than the macrophages. So what does that mean? That's kind of telling us that the macrophages are kind of localizing in um, closer around the tumor cells and that the T cells are sort of sitting around the outside. Why is that important? Because um, if we think about trying to use immunotherapy, which of those immune cells should we be trying to target? So it gives us an idea of, of um, the, a picture of the way in which the immune cells are distributed. And we can use that then to predict if we try and target one immune cell type or another, what's likely to happen. Um, so here what we've got is, again, I've taken a slice of a histology image um, where you can see the individual cells, the tumor cells, the brown staining is telling you where the oxygen levels are low. And so what we can do in here is we can, we have an equation that describes how the oxygen concentration is changing across this tissue. The green dots that you can see jiggling around are macrophages, which are moving in, in response to signals that are being produced by the tumor cells when they're under low oxygen. So the oxygen levels are being shown. So I guess um, light blue to magenta is giving you low oxygen. So in those regions, the tumor cells produce a chemical. It diffuses. The macrophages, when they get a sense of it, are going to try and follow where that, where that signal's coming from. So what we can do is combine, um, use our histology data to kind of run simulations to predict what would happen. So how would this tissue evolve subject to these rules? And then we can start to introduce different types of treatment and predict what might happen. Okay. So um, I guess the vision for the future then would be we've got lots and lots of different types of data, whether that be genotype, um, expression patterns, functional images, um, all sorts of different types of data. We may have information from particular clinical trials, what sorts of in interventions are being uh, made, what drugs, what, what um, different types of immunotherapy, etc., are being um, administered to patients at different times. We can take all of that data and through a combination of, say, mathematical modeling, statistics, topological data analysis, a whole host of things, hopefully we can actually start to make um, some inroads into um, understanding the complexity of all of that data and using it to uh, um, shape um, treatments for patients um, in the future. 
Okay. And so going back then, I hope I've tried, I guess, to um, explain to you or illustrate some of the ways in which can calculus in particular can be used to help to improve cancer treatment or to give us insight into how um, different tumours may be growing and or responding to treatment, but at the same time to show you um, a vision for the future, which would, I think, be much broader than just using calculus. Um, and I guess the key would be um, it's not just one thing that's ever going to cure cancer. We need the clinicians, we need the physicists, engineers, biochemists. It's a broad church and I think everyone has a contribution to make. And hopefully in that way we can actually make um, a significant uh, improvement. Um, and with that, I guess I should acknowledge, obviously, it's not me who does anything very much these days. I think I've demonstrated that with my technical abilities. Um, so these are many of the people that contributed to the work that I've presented to you today and um, some of the um, funding agencies. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and um, welcome any questions. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Helen. Thank you. I think we're going to, do you want to come and, come and right. sit down? Yes. Where would you, yeah, on. Oh, Where would you like we're to just, We're going to argue over which side to sit on. That. Okay. I don't think it matters. Um, look, I think that was very interesting. I didn't really explain, I suppose, my own background. So I'm a basic scientist. I studied science at university and I've studied cancer for most of my, my life, so for about 30 years. So um, but very much from sort of the biological perspective and I guess um, a lot of my about 20 years I worked at the children's hospital at Westmead here in Sydney and one of the things that I learned there was that in terms of I think Helen you talked about clinical trials yes and of course that's very much kind of the the end game in terms of working out what how patients can be better treated and they are essentially experiments that are conducted in people so it is really really important that we do the best possible experiments that we can at that point yeah. and certainly what I learned at the children's hospital is that often there are actually more trials than we conduct than patients so there are many more treatments many more combinations of treatments that we could possibly put together but we actually do not have enough patients yeah. to do those so we absolutely must yes we need we need these kinds of approaches so that we can design the best trials that have the best chance of success yeah. at the end. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of work now where people are doing in silico trials where you'll take sort of uh, data and try and do a synthetic study. You look at the sort of profiles um, of, of patients or people across a population and you can sort of um, try and predict what would be the outcomes and use that, I guess, to guide um, uh, your experimental design um, so, I mean, I think that's another area that's um, certainly developing very much. So, is that something that you think that's is that something that's happening a lot now? Is that a is that a big field or a still a uh, growing, growing field? field? Growing field, yeah, yeah, certainly pharma. Yes, I can imagine. Yes, they'd be saving a lot of money through that kind of thing. Well, hopefully, doing better better trials because yes. I mean, yeah, yes, I would yes. prefer. I think through listening to your talk. The other thing that I was thinking about was it's you know it's clear that modeling has such an important role to play in terms of accelerating research in terms of avoiding unnecessary experimentation so both on people but also animals and you know I know from my own experience that doing experiments in the lab it's slow it's tedious you know you you have lots of failures and things like that so 
I'm wondering, do we have enough people trained to do the kind of work that you're doing? Do we have enough mathematicians um, who are applying their skills to biology and, and human disease? Um, I'm biased. Uh, I would say no. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, we're, we're quite cheap compared to experimentalists. We're all cheap, to be honest. But, you know, you're probably <laughs> well, even I mean, cheaper. Doing, doing even modelling, cheaper. we are relatively cheap. quite yes. cheap. Yes. Good value. Um, go, yeah, let's good call value. it good value good for value. money. Yeah, rather than cheap. <laughs> um, and yes, I think when people start to realise how the modelling can help um, in terms of reducing unnecessary experiments, uh, helping you to um, more sensibly work out what to measure and when oftentimes you want to try and fit a model people want to know predictions they want quantitation um if you haven't got very good data then you you can't give them those predictions mm. and often you know so th this i think having some sort of quantitative understanding and or uh, having a model in mind when you're trying to design an experiment i think will improve the value of that experiment um, so that you make the most of the patients that you're using. Um, so I guess how do we encourage, you know, more crossover between maths and other fields so that, for example, the people, the biologists or the doctors know that they need this kind of support and the mathematicians know that they can provide it, you know? Um, I guess it takes time. We have to learn to speak each other's languages. Mm-hmm um that's quite hard and you have to kind of um um be reasonable uh or find where the modeling can help there's no point in building a model to confirm what you already know uh it has to be a question that i guess you can't already answer um or um the, yeah so um yeah, I think I think you need more dialogue. So people kind of often think that I am a statistician, for example, mm. and it's opening people's minds to some of the ways that maths can be used to gain insight, to try and understand their experiments, and also um, so in a more qualitative way, I would say. Um, and then I guess I think once you can start with in that way when they have data then you can start to uh, challenge them about what they should measure so I've had interactions in the past um, similar to this where um, they've been doing an experiment and we, we we just couldn't sort of predict so it was two different cell types radio resistant radio sensitive and they wanted to work out how many of each type there were um, and they were only measuring the total tumor volume. And we said, well, look, you, you'll never be able to do that. There's just too much uncertainty. But if you just, and so we, we used some modeling to say, if you measure at two or three or four time points, can you predict it? Um, because I think they originally thought we were going to ask them to measure these things because um, every time, every day, and that would just be the biggest pain. Um, and so when we came back and said, no, you don't have to do it every day, just two or three times, mm. that'll be enough. And then actually, so I guess that's the other point. So learning each other's languages and being reasonable. Um, what's the right model for the question that you're answering, trying to answer? Um, you, you have to be, I think, a bit sympathetic. You don't just bring out, here's my model that I use. I'm going to make it fit your problem. Um, and I guess that's part of its experience. 
um, understanding. And if you can't solve the problem, you have to be honest because otherwise you'll just be doing bad science. Mm. And we don't have time for bad science. No. So I might just sort of reserve my right to ask what might be the last question. But one of the slides that you showed at the end where you showed the oxygen sensing, I wonder whether people maybe, you know, I might be one of the only nerdy people in the audience that know that that was actually the topic of the Nobel Prize for medicine this year. Yes. So that was awarded for yeah, the Peter Oxygen. Ratcliffe. Yes, yes, yep. yes, I know. And, of course, you know, it's a very profound contribution to biology. But the Nobel Prizes this year were criticised because, again, there was perhaps less diversity than we might want to see. And I know Helen and I were talking about the Fields Medal, which I think is referred to as the Nobel Prize, the Nobel of Maths, and that's mm -hmm. only been awarded to one woman, mm -hmm. Mariam uh, Mizukani. yep. In, I think, over 80 years, is it? Uh, ever. So, yeah, that's right, yeah. but I mean, yeah. that, that yeah. prize has been awarded yeah. since, since, yeah. since the 30s. So I wondered whether we could just finish on maybe thinking about how we can increase the diversity, because through diversity, of course, we bring you know, more diverse minds and more diverse solutions. So perhaps in terms of your career, whether you can comment on what we can do to increase the diversity of people entering maths and therefore applying their skills to, to a field such as biology. I guess uh, role models is a good thing. And um, going out and talking to people, um, me and many of my colleagues would, you know, we're not necessarily the best public speakers and I guess I think you're pretty good. Thank you. I didn't tee that one up before, <laughs> honest. Um, but I think um, we all have a duty. We go out. Uh, I never had a role model. I guess yeah. I was just stubborn. And like you were saying, I wanted to know what the point is. I kept going until I eventually discovered a point to the maths that I was learning. So I guess outreach is key role models we have to sell our stories better um get into schools um i think events like this are brilliant um getting kids into universities getting them to see we are actually human beings um and yeah <laughs> and that they can get a flavor of the research that we're doing it's not inaccessible to them. We don't have to make it sound really, really complicated. They can appreciate and get a sense of it. And then I hope that has a positive effect um, and will um, encourage more uh, people from all different sorts of backgrounds. Um, they're all just as capable of building models using mathematical techniques. They don't have to be terribly fancy. Uh, everyone is capable of doing modeling and they pretty much do it every day of their life. I think that's a fantastic place to conclude. Please join me in thanking Helen very much for a wonderful talk this evening. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.